You're listening to the Two Minute Time Lord, 120 seconds of concentrated commentary. Welcome to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast number 207 for the 12th of May. I'm Chip, and today you're getting two podcasts for the price of one. In a couple of minutes, I'll be joined by Tara O'Shea, co-editor of Chicks Dig Time Lords, and someone who's just a little acquainted with the fellow named Neil Gaiman, who's got an episode coming up of Doctor Who this weekend. If you're one of the folks out there who isn't very familiar with Gaiman's work and is wondering why those of us who are Gaiman fanboys and girls are so excited about him coming to Doctor Who, then we hope this walk through his work from his early comics days to the graveyard book and everything in between, we hope that this introduction will get you excited. But first, a traditional two-minute Time Lord segment talking about the controversy of the day. Earlier this week, Doctor Who showrunner Stephen Moffat was apparently having a bad day when he complained to a BBC reporter about the effects of spoilers. He pointed to one of the fans at a press launch who wrote a detailed synopsis of The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon. Quote, It is exactly like that boring man in the pub who waits until you're nearly finished your joke and jumps in with the punchline and gets it slightly wrong. You hate that guy. You just hate those guys, too. Can you imagine how much I hate them? And it's a testament both to the popularity of Doctor Who and the apparent slowness of the Newsday that the subject got further play on BBC's Breakfast and Radio 5. The irony, which can still be found on the internet if you look hard enough for it, is that for several weeks fans have been arguing with each other about whether they are getting too much information about upcoming episodes from Cardiff itself. I've mentioned before that, as a bought-and-paid-for Doctor Who fan, the amount of hype surrounding me was wearying. But at the same time, there are loads of casual Doctor Who fans, and more importantly, casual TV viewers, who needed to be hit with the sledgehammer of attention, especially true outside the UK. So was Moffat being disingenuous when he called spoiling surprises, quote, vandalism? Absolutely not. As brand manager Edward Russell puts it, there's a difference between teasers and spoilers, and that's not just wordplay. Moffat and the BBC have two obligations, first, to the story, but second, to promote the story. Moffat may reveal bits leading up to the punchline, but he'll never willingly reveal the punchline itself. He would consider that, from his perspective, a spoiler. That said, it's understandable that there are fans who want a completely fresh experience, and those fans are frustrated, because if you reveal too much of the joke too early, there's a risk that the punchline falls flat. Cardiff and its official outlets like Doctor Who magazine have been teasing a lot, and it's alright for fans to be frustrated, as long as they're polite about it. I guess what I'm asking for is a little trade-off. Slightly fewer teasers from Cardiff, and for those fans invited to private screenings, Keep your freaking promises. So a year and a half ago or so, or two years ago, or whenever it was that people started speculating that one Neil Gaiman might be writing an episode of Series 5 of Doctor Who, which of course turned out to be Series 6, there were some Doctor Who fans out there who said, and I quote, 
who? That's the weirdest thing about fandom is that it's like Venn diagrams all over the place, and people who are deeply, deeply monofocused into something like Doctor Who can be completely unaware of other stuff happening just a short genre hop away. Today on the Two Minute Time Lord Podcast Time Dilation Edition, we're going to be talking a little bit about who this Neil Gaiman guy is and what he's bringing to Doctor Who and uh, what we're hoping to see, or what I'm hoping to see anyway, in the episode that's airing this Saturday. And with me is an acquaintance of his, the co-editor of Chicks Dig Time Lord, and someone who's been known to sashay about in a net dot trench coat the lovely Tara O'Shea. Tara, hi. Hi, Chip. It's good to be back with you. It's great to be with you again. Uh, how's that Chick's Dig Time Lords book doing? It seems to be doing quite well. Uh, we are honored and thrilled uh, by the Hugo nomination for Best Related, and I am already shopping for giant, puffy, uh, poofy quinceanera dresses on the internet, Uh as I'm treating Worldcon this year like the prom that I never had. Oh, that's awesome. So, Arnold McGuire and I will be wearing some pretty ginormous dresses come August. Everybody who's listening to this who might happen to be a Worldcon member totally, totally needs to be voting for Chicks Dig Time Lords, but then you already knew that and you're already doing it anyway. Well, and, and honestly, I know people say this all the time, but really just being nominated is a huge thrill and honor and, and something we never expected. And, you know, if we win, that will be icing. This is my first uh, invitation to this particular dance. And I plan on drinking a lot of spiked punch and dancing with everyone. Again, prom. Fantastic. Now, to the business at hand, Neil Gaiman, 101. I always describe Gaiman as either, he's either the cult writer that everyone's heard of or the New York Times best-selling writer who nobody has heard of. He's uh, just that kind of interesting genre figure uh, that's been around for a while. Who is this Neil Gaiman guy, anyway? The first time I encountered Neil Gaiman as a writer, it was actually not The Sandman. It was Black Orchid. I had seen the the uh, promotional artwork that DC put out. And this is a comic book posted this published a, by DC. It was it was a three issue, I believe it was a three issue prestige format series, which meant it was it was very uh, small trade paperbacks, uh, the same way that Stardust was originally published. Illustrated by Dave McKean, who is a longtime collaborator of Neil's. Black Orchid was my first exposure to Gaiman's work, and I really, really fell in love with the story. I didn't know the character at all. Most people didn't. He had taken uh, a very obscure DC Comics character. And the story was unlike anything that I'd uh, seen before. It added a lot of mythic dimension. It tied the character in with Alan Moore's Swamp Thing continuity. I remember seeing Sandman on the shelves, but being about 15 years old, I didn't really know those comics as well. I didn't know those characters as well because Hellblazer and Sandman and Swamp Thing, the books that would become the Vertigo, the flagship titles of the Vertigo imprint. Those were sort of the comic books that were geared at over 18s, mature readers, that sort of thing. The Suggested for Mature Readers label um, sort of happened at the same time. It was, it was um, the, the late 1980s was sort of a great time to be a comic book fan, uh, and certainly I, I was relatively new to it, having come to it in the mid-1980s, um, and I, I was a huge, and still am, a huge uh, mainstream superhero 
comics fangirl. Um, a lot of women who read comics and who have read comics for the last 20 years sort of come to it through indie books or through books their boyfriend loaned them as, you know, comics is a sexually transmitted disease. Um, <laughs> I, I was one of those kids who grew up with the iconic Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman uh, TV series and films and cartoons, and I knew those characters. And so I actually picked up the comics because I knew the characters from media going back to uh, according to my parents, uh, before I could even read. So around age two or three. Um, so I came to Sandman late in the run. I came, well, relatively late in the run. I came, I started reading with issue 20, I believe it was the beginning of the season of Miss arc, which was actually a really good starting point for new readers. Um, particularly as in 1992, I believe they, they issued the first two storylines, dream country which was a collection of short stories, including the World Fantasy Award-winning Midsummer Night's Dream issue, illustrated by Charles Vess, and A Doll's House as trade paperbacks. So uh, let's 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 stop here for just a second, Tara, I because just a huge amount of comics geek on you. <laughs> you, you, and and being a huge comics geek, I got it all. But I want to make sure that folks who are listening, who are Doctor Who fans but aren't too in tune with comics, are are able to keep up. Sandman, though, is something that most people have probably heard about. That is a uh, that is Gaiman's magnum opus, and it's almost funny that he's been writing for so many years since then. This is still the the thing that he's most identified with. It was a seventy five issue uh, comic book series with a few specials out there, all about this uh, Dream Lord guy, and it was I thought it. There are a lot of parallels between that comic and Doctor Who in terms of it being something that you could do. You, you could do any genre in, of, of storytelling in that one. It was a very flexible, uh, dark fantasy series, wasn't it? Well, it it actually started with its roots in the DC Comics universe, in that um, many of the the characters were part of the DC universe originally. It was interesting that the way that the book began it was by taking a very obscure character and spinning a completely new story so that was part of the appeal for a lot of people i think that sandman crossing genres has a lot to do with the fact that it is its own self-contained story you do not need to be a regular reader of dc comics or a historical reader of dc comics to understand sandman it's about stories it, yes, uh, it's like, a story about stories yeah you know it's, it's like a little it's like watching the film watchmen People who have read the comics Watchmen are very excited because they're they're like, oh, it's just like the comic. People who know the Charleston characters that those Watchmen characters were based on, like Blue Beetle, it's that extra layer of meta-awareness. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited to see how it gets incorporated into Doctor Who. Because as fans, being an original Doctor Who series fan, um, watching the new series, there are those wonderful moments where you've got the three levels. You've got the actual story that's happening, which is very entertaining. You've got little Easter eggs to previous Doctor Who stories, and then there's game changing on a complete series scale occasionally, and and that's part of the joy. I mean, like the moment in Gridlock where half the fans are going, "Oh my God, Martha just got the Doctor to talk about Gallifrey," and the other half are all going, "Oh my God, the Macra." <laughs> And it's not even split along gender lines because a lot of the people I knew going, oh my God, the macro were women who are massive Troughton fans. I might be referring to L.M. Miles there. Uh, but it's, it's Sandman is a story about stories. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really 
I was really excited when I learned that, that Neil Gaiman was writing a Doctor Who episode because Doctor Who is another one of those programs that, like, like Sandman as a comic, you can tell any story. It is not constrained by any genre. I, even though in the United States Doctor Who is perceived as a science fiction show, in reality it, it's any kind of show it needs to be to tell the story it wants to tell. It can be a gothic horror, it can be a children's fantasy, it can be a fairy tale, it can be a World War II film, it can be any story it needs to be, and often is. Since Sandman, Gaiman has gone on to write television. He's written some movie scripts. He's uh, written some stories that were adapted into movies. He's uh, written uh, some wonderful novels, including uh, American Gods, which is coming up on its 10th anniversary. And, you know, if if I wanted to start a checklist of all of the reasons why all of us Neil Gaiman fans have been so excited about him writing a Doctor Who script and wanted to explain that to folks who don't know him very well, that would be my first tick box. He's just so gifted and versatile as a genre writer. The big ones that uh, you may have heard of, in addition to Sandman, would be Neverwhere, which was a BBC miniseries that was later adapted into several different formats. He wrote the young adult novel, or children's novel, Coraline, which was adapted into a movie. And Stardust, was that a novella? It was actually an illustrated story that he and Charles Vest told. Uh, so it, it featured full-page Charles Vest paintings, and it's very much a fairy tale for, for adults. And it is very much both Neil and Charles. The novel, based on the original illustrated story, uh, was written by Neil and published on its own. And I think that novel is what the film is based on. But you see a lot of Charles Vess's artwork in the film. You see a lot of the character designs. In I was amazed at how director Matthew Vaughn, who's best known for producing Guy Ritchie's gangster films um, and films like Layer Cake, uh, Matthew Vaughn made an incredibly entertaining fairy tale movie that I think stands up right next to the princess bride and the court jester for me. Absolutely. So, and it, and it was very it's I thought it was very faithful to Gaiman stuff. So if you're not familiar with Neil Gaiman, that's not a bad sort of introduction. It, the movie wasn't scripted by him, but it's very much his story coming out there. Well, and the things that I love about the novel and the things that I love about the illustrated novel and the things that I love about the movie are all the same things but in in very different ways. The movie does differ um, in certain aspects from the the illustrated story, I would say if you if you did want the absolute purest Stardust experience, you have to lay hands on the Charles Vess illustrated story. That to me is Stardust. The film is very very entertaining, but um, it's not Stardust without Charles Vess to me. Yeah, the second tick box I have for uh, why you, dear listener, should be as excited about Game and writing Doctor Who as we are is that he plays well with others. For the longest time, since his regular comics days, he's been a best-selling author of original fiction, but he made his first name for himself in shared universes and collaborating very, very well. And even though he's now very well-established and doesn't need to work on stuff that other people own, there's stuff that scratches either a creative itch or a fanboy itch, and definitely Doctor Who is scratching that fanboy itch, wouldn't you say? He's a great big Doctor Who geek, and I actually really love that about the new series, that it was something that, reading his blog entries about watching both Doctor Who and Sarah Jane Adventures with his daughter Maddie, he is one of us. You know, he is very much a fan, and has been since he was a very small child. This is the only time I will make this reference, but before I went to my very first Gallifrey one, it was my very first really big Doctor Who convention, uh, I asked him, is there anything you want me 
to try to find for you. And I got an email back saying, I need the 1965 Dalek World Annual. And <laughs> no, first, first I got the email of, of, no, no, I'm fine. Then I need the 1964 Dalek Book Annual. Oh, no, wait. Oh, I think I'm getting them mixed up. In either case, what was very entertaining for me was the email was then immediately followed by, no, wait, I have the one from when I was four years old. I just need this other one. And that, to me is everything you need to know about the person who's writing this week's episode is he has been a fan since he was a tiny child and has poured everything he loves about Doctor Who as a, a series and, and the Doctor as a character into this episode. And I am so excited to see it on the big screen. And, and I, I know I know other people will be too. I'm just gushing at this point, which sounds horrible because I know that a lot of people out there look at uh, occasionally name writers who come in, especially someone like Neil, who has a very, very loyal, uh, at times, um, rabid, loyal, but, but epic fan base. <laughs> uh, well, when you've produced work, especially genre work that has crossed boundaries for 25 years, you are going to get some very loyal fans out there. I think, I think a lot of, uh, we're seeing it now also with, with George R. R. Martin fans who are all, they were all terrified of Game of Thrones, uh, the adaptation of, those novels and and I think people are embracing it. I think it's going to be interesting to see how many Neil Gaiman fans become diehard Doctor Who fans after this week because I think it's one of those things where you can't always assume everyone who who has read one of Neil's novels or has read comics is also a Doctor Who fan. Uh, even Stephen Moffat, who is a a diehard Doctor Who fan, is not really uh, a comics fan or a science fiction fan. So he only really knew Neil Gaiman as someone who had written novels and and I don't think had even been aware that he had written the Neverwhere TV series for BBC3 in 1993 because it was sort of a blip on the radar back when he was doing Press Gang, uh, which was his first gig. So it, it'll definitely be interesting. I know that part of the joy for, for me watching Neverwhere uh, when I first saw it, even though it is perhaps not what everyone envisioned that it would be, it wasn't exactly. It it, it looked Everyone like something from 1993 on a on a 1985 Doctor Who budget. It was it was definitely um, not everything that it could have been, but what it was was in a lot of ways um, Neil Gaiman writing Doctor Who, and right down to the I character, the Marquis de Carabas, the the Marquis de Carabas. Uh, but also just the, trying to capture that sense of wonder, trying to to get that format of half hour episodes. I think that I think that it was in a way sort of an audition, um, and that was also the the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that before writing comics, Neil was a journalist, and a lot of his relationships uh, were formed when he was still a journalist. And I think uh, he and Lenny Henry's friendship, which is so important, you know that that led to the Neverwhere writing gig as much as Sandman did. As a writer, not only does he span genres, it, it's really um, I think that's part of the broad appeal is that is that People find Neil Gaiman in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And uh, that is one thing that I want to point out is that this is somebody who has had some experience writing for the screen. Uh, Neverwhere was a six-part uh, mini, as you said, for BBC Three. And he also wrote an episode of Babylon 5, which was odd enough in that that was, that was a series that towards the latter half of its run was being written exclusively by one guy, J. Michael Straczynski, who nonetheless found uh, Gaiman compelling enough that he really wanted to get him to do an episode. And a lot of people think that, that was the standout episode of uh, what was comparatively a pretty weak season. 
I actually can't speak to that because I haven't seen it. I was not a Babylon 5 fan. Um, I, I watched the first half of the first season and then... You, you had to have a little more patience <laughs> to get through that no, stuff, I, I, to get to the good I, stuff. I think it was the third and fourth seasons when there was the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mostly came back for Ivanova. And um, unfortunately, once Ivanova was gone, so was I as a viewer. But uh, trust, trust, me, trust me when I say that uh, Gaiman's episode, uh, Day of the Dead, was very moody, very evocative, very different uh, from the uh, other 21 episodes that were surrounding it. And it still fit in. And I have the sense, I have seen very little of the trailers for uh, Neil's episode coming up, but I, I, I have the sense I'll get some of the same vibe from it. Um, he's a good TV writer for somebody who hasn't written a whole lot of TV. I think so. I mean, I was very entertained by Neverwhere when I first saw it. I read the novelization after I saw the episode, so literally I experienced it as a television series before uh, I read it, which is the opposite for most fans. But I, I really loved it, and I loved um, the English language adaptation of Miyazaki's... Um, Princess Mononoke. Yes. Mononoke was the first thing that I saw that he had done, and that was a, that was definitely an interesting job because because they were looping it with American... Writing the um, English language script for subtitling was easy because you can actually keep the essence of, of the dialogue. Writing the dub script must have been an exercise in, in madness. I can't, I can't imagine trying to write a dub script, especially of a film like Modern Okay, but Neil was the guy to do it because... Oh, that, that sounded very flippant. Neil Gaiman was the guy to do it, though, because it was, a, it was an epic fairy tale, and he has made a name for not just telling close personal stories, but close personal stories that are also epic fairy tales at the same time. And I can't think of a better way to describe the Moffat era of Doctor Who thus far than as a very epic fairy tale. I think he's going to fit right in on uh, this Saturday's episode. To wrap this up, let's say that we have Doctor Who fans who don't know Neil Gaiman, um, who see this Saturday's episode, and they really, really like it. If you had to pick just one or two uh, things that Gaiman's written um, or, or created that they should try out next, what would you recommend? Well, if you're a grown-up, Coraline is absolutely horrifying. If you're a, a kid, Coraline is absolutely entertaining. So that's um, definitely a book that I think appeals to, to everyone. I also am incredibly fond of the Graveyard Book. Um, not having been a huge Kipling fan as a kid, I still absolutely loved it, and it's worth. It's definitely worth the Newbery in my mind. Um, in terms of picking up Sandman, I would say... The Dream Hunters or Dream Country are good places to start because they are self-contained short stories with amazing scope, and you don't need to know everything about that universe in order to enjoy those stories. I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, good Omens is a great first Neil and Terry book that will hook you on both of them. Sounds like great recommendations indeed. I'm, to think of, I'm, I'm just trying to think of something for everybody. Um, certainly, if you are not... Visually oriented, I know a lot of people have trouble with comics. My mother can't read comics because she never knows what order to read the panels in. And I I say that jokingly, but it is actually a learned skill. Um, If you are just looking for prose um, and you have never picked up American Gods, American Gods is a road trip. American Gods is the epic story of America. American Gods is... A fascinating look at melding cultures, and it's also 
a swindle and a heist and a book ultimately about con men. So if any of those books sounds interesting to you, you will find all of them within the pages of American Gods. All right. Well, before we go down to the second shelf of the uh, bookshelves to uh, find more recommendations, I do think we need to wrap things up. Uh, Tara, where can we um, – well, of course, we can find your work within the pages of Chicks Dig Time Lords. And is if there's anybody who – if you want to let people uh, follow you on your blog, where would you direct them? Uh, I would actually say start with my Twitter feed, which is Tara underscore O'Shea, O-S-H-E-A at Twitter. Um, I am also in my other life, in addition to being a writer and editor, I'm a graphic designer, and I've been contributing graphics to BorderTownTheSeries.com, which is the new website for Terry Windling's shared world series, Bordertown, which is coming back into print with a brand new anthology this month in May, edited by Ellen Kushner and Holly Black which features not only stories and poems by Neil Gaiman, Jane Yolen, Corey Doctorow, Kat Valenti, um, Ellen Kushner, and Stephen Bruce, and a host of other writers. It's also just a fantastic, fantastic series that I was truly honored to be working with uh, people the, the caliber of Ellen Kushner and Terry Windling, and they've been so gracious in allowing me to bombard them with graphics. Um I also am web designer for seananmaguire.com and miragrant.com. And Seanan has the second uh, deadline novel. It's the second volume of the Newsflesh trilogy that began with Feed, the Hugo-nominated Feed, uh, is published this month, Deadline. And there will soon be a plethora of wallpapers and icons from me up on her site. There may be some exciting stuff coming from King Tempest Bradford and me in the future we're working on that and there will definitely be blog posts about my life my convention going my love of doctor who my love of various other media properties all on my blog uh, which can be found at fringe-element.blogspot.com all right tara thank you so much for coming on the podcast and helping some folks find out more about this uh gaming guy that everyone's talking about you can't miss him he's got really unruly hair and a black leather jacket and that's the end of another time dilation edition of the two minute time lord podcast you can find more episodes, both of the normal two-minute variety and the extended interviews, at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com or on iTunes, where if you'd leave a review, I'd love it. I'm on Twitter at Numeral Two Minute Time Lord, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Numeral Two Minute Time Lord. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>